Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Jack London's The Call of the Wild. The ice is thawing, and Buck's trek may finally be over. Lying by the riverbank through the long spring days, watching the running water, listening lazily to the songs of birds and the hum of nature, Buck slowly won back his strength. Love, genuine, passionate love, was his for the first time. This he had never experienced at Judge Miller's down in the sun-kissed Santa Clara Valley. With the judge it had been a dignified friendship, but love that was feverish and burning, that was adoration, that was madness, it had taken John Thornton to arouse. This man had saved his life, which was something, but further, he was the ideal master. He had a way of taking Buck's head roughly between his hands and resting his own head upon Buck's, of shaking him back and forth, the while calling him ill names that the Buck were love names. Buck knew no greater joy than that rough embrace and the sound of murmured oaths, and at each jerk back and forth it seemed that his heart would be shaken out of his body, so great was its ecstasy. Buck had a trick of love expression that was akin to hurt. He would often seize Thornton's hand in his mouth and close so fiercely that the flesh bore the impress of his teeth for some time afterward, and as Buck understood the oaths to be love words, so the man understood this feigned bite for a caress. But in spite of this great love he bore John Thornton, the strain of the primitive which the Northland had aroused in him remained alive and active. He was older than the days he had seen and the breaths he had drawn. He linked the past with the present, and the eternity behind him throbbed through him in a mighty rhythm to which he swayed as the tides and seasons swayed. Deep in the forest, a call was sounding. When Thornton's partners, Hans and Pete, arrived, Buck refused to notice them till he learned they were close to Thornton. After that, he tolerated them in a passive sort of way. For Thornton, however, his love seemed to grow and grow. At Circle City, ere the year was out, Black Burton, a man evil-tempered and malicious, had been picking a quarrel with a tenderfoot at the bar, when Thornton stepped good-naturedly between. Buck, as was his custom, was lying in a corner, watching his master's every action. Burton struck out, without warning, straight from the shoulder. Thornton was sent spinning, and saved himself from falling only by clutching the rail of the bar. Those who were looking on heard what was neither bark nor yelp, but a something which is best described as a roar, and they saw Buck's body rise up in the air as he left the floor for Burton's throat. The man saved his life by instinctively throwing out his arm, but was hurled backward to the floor with Buck on top of him. Buck loosed his teeth from the flesh of the arm and drove in again for the throat. This time the man succeeded only in partly blocking, and his throat was torn open. Then the crowd was upon Buck, and he was driven off. A miner's meeting, called on the spot, decided that the dog had sufficient provocation, and Buck was discharged. But his reputation was made, and from that day his name spread through every camp in Alaska. John Thornton 
now journeyed with his partners into the east. Back and forth they twisted through the uncharted vastness. At the end of all their wandering, they found a shallow placer in a broad valley where the gold showed like yellow butter across the bottom of the washing pan. They sought no farther. Each day they worked, earned them thousands of dollars in clean dust and nuggets, and they worked every day. Buck spent long hours musing by the fire. The call was still sounding in the depths of the forest. It filled him with a great unrest and strange desires. One night, he sprang from sleep with a start. From the forest came a long-drawn howl. He sprang through the sleeping camp and in swift silence dashed through the woods till he came to an open place among the trees and looking out saw erect on haunches with nose pointed to the sky a long lean timber wolf. Buck did not attack but circled him about and hedged him in with friendly advances. The wolf was suspicious and afraid. But in the end, Buck's pertinacity was rewarded, for the wolf, finding that no harm was intended, finally sniffed noses with him. Then they became friendly, and played about in the nervous, half-coy way with which fierce beasts belie their fierceness. After some time of this, the wolf started off at an easy lope, in a manner that plainly showed he was going somewhere. Buck remembered John Thornton. He turned about and started slowly back. For two days and nights, Buck never left camp, never let Thornton out of his sight. But after two days, the call in the forest began to sound more imperiously than ever. Buck's restlessness came back on him. He began to sleep out at night, staying away from camp for days at a time. But for the stray brown on his muzzle and above his eyes, and for the splash of white hair, that ran midmost down his chest, he might well have been mistaken for a gigantic wolf, larger than the largest of the breed. His cunning was wolf cunning, and wild cunning. His intelligence, shepherd intelligence, and St. Bernard intelligence. And all this, plus an experience gained in the fiercest of schools, made him as formidable a creature as any that roamed the wild. As the fall of the year came on, the moose appeared, moving slowly down to meet the winter in the lower valleys. Chief among them was a great bull. He was in a savage temper, and standing over six feet from the ground, was as formidable an antagonist as even Buck could desire. His small eyes burned with a vicious and bitter light, while he roared with fury at sight of Buck. Buck proceeded to cut the bull out from the herd, Three hundred weight more than half a ton he weighed. He had lived a long, strong life, full of fight and struggle, and at the end he faced death at the teeth of a creature whose head did not reach beyond his great knuckled knees. Buck never left his prey, never gave it a moment's rest. At last, at the end of the fourth day, he pulled the great moose down. For a day and a night, he remained by the kill, eating and sleeping. Then, rested, refreshed, and strong, he turned his face toward camp and John Thornton. Three miles away, he came upon a fresh trail that sent his neck hair rippling and bristling 
it led straight toward camp. Bellying forward to the edge of the clearing, he found Hans lying on his face, feathered with arrows like a porcupine. A gust of overpowering rage swept over him. For the last time in his life, he allowed passion to usurp cunning and reason, and it was because of his great love for John Thornton that he lost his head. The Yee Hats were dancing about the wreckage of the Spruce Bow Lodge when they heard a fearful roaring. It was Buck, hurling himself upon them in a frenzy to destroy. He sprang at the foremost man. It was the chief of the Yee Hats, ripping the throat wide open. There was no withstanding him. He plunged about in their very midst, tearing, rending, destroying, in constant and terrific motion which defied the arrows they discharged at him. Then a panic seized the Yee Hats, and they fled in terror to the woods, proclaiming as they fled the advent of the evil spirit. As for Buck, wearying of the pursuit, he returned to the desolated camp. Thornton's desperate struggle was fresh written on the earth, and Buck scented every detail of it down to the edge of a deep pool. It contained John Thornton, for Buck followed his trace into the water, from which no trace led away. All day Buck brooded by the pool, or roamed restlessly about the camp. Night came on, and Buck became alive to a stirring of the new life in the forest. He stood up, listening and scenting. From far away drifted a faint, sharp yelp, followed by a chorus of similar sharp yelps. The wolf pack had at last crossed over from the land of streams and timber and invaded Buck's valley. Into the clearing where the moonlight streamed, they poured in a silvery flood, and in the center of the clearing stood Buck, motionless as a statue, waiting their coming. They were awed, so still and large he stood, and a moment's pause fell, till the boldest one leaped straight for him. Like a flash, Buck struck, breaking the neck. Then he stood, without movement, as before, the stricken wolf rolling in agony behind him. This was sufficient to fling the whole pack forward. Buck's marvelous quickness and agility stood him in good stead. Pivoting on his hind legs and snapping and gashing, he was everywhere at once. He worked along to a right angle in the bank, which the men had made in the course of mining, and in this angle he came to bay, protected on three sides and with nothing to do but face the front. The wolves drew back, discomfited. One wolf, long and lean and gray, advanced cautiously, in a friendly manner, and Buck recognized the wild brother with whom he had played. He was whining softly, and as Buck whined, they touched noses. Then an old wolf, gaunt and battle-scarred, came forward. Buck writhed his lips into the preliminary of a snarl, but sniffed noses with him, whereupon the old wolf sat down, pointed nose at the moon, and broke out the long wolf howl. The others sat down and howled, and now the call came to Buck in unmistakable accents. He, too, sat down and howled. This over, he came out of his angle, and the pack crowded around him, sniffing in half-friendly, half-savage manner. 
the leaders lifted the yelp of the pack and sprang away into the woods. The wolves swung in behind, yelping in chorus, and Buck ran with them, side by side with the wild brother, yelping as he ran. The years were not many when the Yeehats noted a change in the breed of timber wolves, for some were seen with splashes of brown on head and muzzle, and with a rift of white centering down the chest. But more remarkable than this, the Yeehats tell of a ghost dog that runs at the head of the pack. They are afraid of this ghost dog, for it has cunning greater than they, stealing from their camps in fierce winters, robbing their traps, slaying their dogs, and defying their bravest hunters. In the summers, a great, gloriously coated wolf, like and yet unlike all other wolves, crosses alone from the smiling timberland and comes down into an open space among the trees. Here he muses for a time, howling once, long and mournfully, ere he departs. But he is not always alone. When the long winter nights come on and the wolves follow their meat into the lower valleys, he may be seen running at the head of the pack through the pale moonlight or glimmering borealis, leaping gigantic above his fellows, his great throat a bellow, as he sings a song of the younger world, which is the song of the pack. Kerry Shale was reading The Call of the Wild by Jack London. It was abridged by Robin Brooks, produced by Clive Brill, and is a Brill production. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.